You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Peter Ernest, the executive director of the museum. I served for some 36 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, largely as what is called an operations officer or a case officer. Every month we'll be bringing you interesting talks with visitors, with authors, with others who have something to do with the world of intelligence and espionage. My guest today is Bob Drogan. Bob Drogan is a national security reporter with the Los Angeles Times, uh, a newspaper he's been with since 1983. And I believe, Bob, you've been covering national security affairs since 1998. And uh, I invited Bob on today uh, because he has uh, just published a book in October of this year called Curveball, Spies, Lies, and the Con Man Who Caused a War. Curveball was the U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency codename for an Iraqi defector in Germany who claimed, among other things, that Saddam Hussein was operating a fleet of mobile biological weapons labs. Uh, this worked its way into a variety of reports, including the State of the Union report, and people attribute a variety of things to that information. Uh, Bob Drogan has acted as an investigative reporter here and tried to get to the bottom of Curveball, who he was, what he did, why he did it, and what the effects were. So that's what we're talking with him about today. Uh, Bob, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Bob, who was Curveball? Curveball was an Iraqi chemical engineer, um, raised in northern Baghdad, um, went to the university there. He defected to Germany in 1999, um, and he went as a uh, sought political asylum, went through a refugee camp there, a place called Zerndorf. Uh, he, he was a Mar straight refugee. When you say a defector, he was not an intelligence officer. That's correct. He uh, went as a refugee. That's right. Sorry. He was treated asylum. as, that's correct. He sure. was treated as a defector in, in, in this situation. He was a refugee. He saw political asylum in 1999. And uh, at some point after, shortly, uh, within weeks really, after he had uh, landed in this refugee camp, which I, I went and visited, which is a fairly miserable place. It looks like a prison, frankly. Uh, he was being uh, undergoing a routine in interview by the German intelligence service, the federal 
intelligence service there, uh, known as the BND. And uh, during that first interview, he began to talk about not, not uranium. In fact, it was uh, mobile biological weapons laboratories. He was talking about biological weapons. And he began to spin an extraordinary story to the German intelligence authorities, which was that he had helped design and build a fleet of vehicles uh, that were, could carry biological weapons production facilities on trucks and trains. And they pulled him out of the BND, pulled him out of the refugee camp, set him up as, uh, as an informant, uh, and began to pass his information on to the Americans and other intelligence services. Okay, there's, uh, we, we have only a limited amount of time, so I'm going to jump forward a bit and then perhaps go back and ask you a few questions. How did, and he became known as Curveball, that mm -hmm. was his BND code name, I take it. It was actually an American-issued code name. There, okay. was, there was a group uh, in, in Munich uh, at a place called Munich House that was a defense human service uh, team, and they're the ones that first, as best we can tell, first issued him the code name Curveball. So, his real name was, is Rafik Alwan. He all was right. a, I've, yeah. I know, you, know you've written an entire book on this, but in a word, in a few words, how did Curveball's information, which right now we have no way of knowing whether it was true or not, that is, if we go back in time to that moment when the BND first heard it, how did that information make its way into the higher levels of American intelligence and eventually into the State of the Union speech and also become a consideration in the decision to go to war? Uh, it, the, the German authorities have uh, very close relations, obviously, with the United States intelligence services. And in particular, the BND works very closely with the DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency. And the DIA has a, a wing there called the Defense Human Service. Defense Human had a team in Munich. They were getting this information, uh, these reports uh, from the BND. They were passing them, putting them, translating them, putting them into... Uh, U.S. intelligence channels. They were moving through the system. They didn't have very much impact at first, but uh, after 2000, after the September 11, 2001 attacks, these reports were pulled out of the safe and suddenly were given much higher priority. And uh, they wound up not only in this president's State of the Union speech, but Colin Powell, when he went to the United Nations, uh, really used them as the highlight of his, uh, his speech to uh, the Security Council. My understanding is that the German service, the BND, had reason to doubt the information rather early on, that they had reason to think perhaps he was what's called a fabricator, somebody who makes up information either for, for money or glory or to uh, get better leaving conditions if he's a refugee. Um, is, is that your understanding that the Germans early on had the sense that his story... The Germans issued a series of mm. warnings to the, the U.S., uh, particularly to the CIA, to the station chief in Berlin and others, uh, warning that basically curveball that they won, they had not confirmed his story, they could not vet his background, uh, and they didn't know whether he was a fabricator or not, and that was their concern. Uh, moreover, they felt he was, he'd had a nervous breakdown, they thought he might be uh, crazy, and they were concerned about the veracity. They couldn't prove it one way or the other, uh, was basically what they were telling the Americans. Uh, was that told to the Americans early on? Uh, there, yeah, the the uh, the investigations found uh, various uh, warnings in the files. 
I think as early as 2000. Uh, his information was coming in in 2000 and 2001. The first uh, CIA officer who went and actually saw him was in May of 2000, and he came back uh, and, and wrote a report saying uh, he thought the guy might be a drunk, which of course doesn't mean he's a liar, but uh, he, he was basically concerned enough about it that, that he put it on paper. Uh, and he was the only person uh, the only American to meet Curveball, to our knowledge, until a year after the war. Uh, part of the problem in this case was uh, when uh, the CIA, in particular, was really highlighting this report, this this man's information. Uh, they weren't disclosing to policymakers that they had never met him. They had never confirmed their information, uh, and frankly, didn't even know his name before the war. Uh, given that the Germans had had concerns about him, as you said, that he had a nervous breakdown, appeared to have had one, appeared that he might might be uh, 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 crazy even, that, that's the word you used, and that the one CIA officer who, who saw him thought he might be drunk, obviously concerns about his uh, stability, let's mm -hmm. put it that way. How did someone assessed in that fashion, how did his information gain such credence as it went up the line? You know, I considered a, a uh, conspiracy of carelessness, um, that there was wishful thinking going on, that at a number of places along the way that I was able to, to highlight in the book, where you had um, people in the intelligence community saying, huh, this looks bad, but somebody must know more than I do about this. Or, well, his information seems plausible, and I really don't know about these other issues. That is, his dis the descriptions that were coming in seemed plausible, what he seemed to know about the trucks. What wasn't clear, because the Americans never got to interview him, was how much of that information really was coming out of the German um, the, the German intelligence authority, that is, they were filling in the gaps the way they described it to me. They were helping him, they were giving him books on an engineering and whatnot, and he was using that, and it turned out he was going to the internet and reading old United Nations uh, weapons inspections reports about Saddam Hussein's biological weapons program, and he was feeding back this information that made him sound considerably more knowledgeable than he was. It also turned out he was, uh, so he was giving them this information back and they were passing it along. And by the time it got to here, to Washington, um, there was such a fear after 9-11 of having missed the story, of having missed the threat, and being criticized after 9-11 for having uh, failed to connect the dots, that in this case, I believe what they did is they, they, um, they made up the dots. You know, or they ignored the problems. What, what, in reflection, what do you consider his curveball's motivation might have been to to continue to, to sort of? Feed oh, it's into very very clear. His motivation was he wanted asylum. He um, that's very clear. Everyone who has, both the German authorities and the Americans who who finally interviewed him, and and, uh, and I unfortunately was not uh, able to do so, but I've talked to the people who did. Uh, was he was uh, just trying to get you know what a lot of people want. He wanted a, a ticket to the West. And he wanted a Mercedes. He wanted a job. He wanted to get his family out. He wanted to get out you know from the tyranny of Saddam Hussein's Iraq. And, um, and of course as with many defectors who have information for a while they're sort of center of attention they're living better they're treated well uh, away from this sort of almost prison-like uh, uh, situation that you described earlier what might have been what do you think would have was the German motivation to sort of as you put it fill in the blanks there were a couple of issues happening one was a um, years really decades of distrust and um, antagonism in particular between the BND authorities and the CIA uh, all during the Cold War 
the CIA had treated the BND really as a step son, you know, and, and rather uh, they dismissed them. They treated them, uh, at least as far as the Germans were concerned, with... Um, with something close to contempt. And there was reason for that because the BND had been penetrated uh, repeatedly and at the most senior levels by uh, East German and, and Soviet bloc uh, intelligence services. So there was this sense that the BND really wasn't in the big leagues and they didn't trust it. And uh, uh, some of the people in the BND who I spoke to, it made it clear that this issue became, on one hand, pride of service. They had this guy, the Americans didn't have him. He was like, he was claiming to have this extraordinary access. The Americans really had no one in Iraq at that point. Uh, and there was this sense, we don't, why do we have to give them up to the Americans? He's, you know, we're perfectly capable. In addition, there was a, a degree of um, the, the man who was the head of the German, um, who had the cabinet rank um, for intelligence, Ernst, uh, Ernst Erlau, um, had been the former chief of police in Hamburg. And he had personally taken great umbrage when the after 9-11 U.S. authorities blamed the so-called Hamburg cell for the attack. And he had felt not unreasonably that, wait a second, these guys lived in America for a long time and they operated very openly there. Why are you blaming us for this? Uh, and, and so he felt sort of that he had been, the Germans had been fingered or somehow unfairly blamed for 9-11. So you had a lot of sort of personal issues as well as these professional ones. And frankly, as, as, as you know, there's not a lot. There's not a tradition of one intelligence service necessarily just handing over a source to another one. I mean, the CIA doesn't even let you know the Pentagon, the DIA, interview their their informants, so or their agents in this case. So the Germans basically said no way when the Americans asked for access, and they didn't think it was a problem because they, from what they said to me, they couldn't imagine that America would go to war on the basis of these second-hand reports of a guy who they warned had never, whose information had never been confirmed. What role do you think the information provided by Curveball played in the decision to go to war? Well, it's not so much what I think. The, the Rob Silberman Commission, which was appointed by the president um, uh, to investigate the intelligent debacle uh, in Iraq, uh, as well as the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, both concluded that Curveball's information was the chief, if not only, source of um, intelligence on Saddam's, Saddam Hussein's um, biological weapons program. So, so there's not, it's not just whether I think that's important. What, what also came clear in that is that the analysts at the CIA who were analyzing Saddam's chemical weapons increased, ramped up their conclusions, the confidence level of their conclusions about Saddam's chemical weapons program when they saw the reports coming out of the BW crew. That is, they saw, they thought, well, it's much more difficult to build a covert biological weapons program than it is to do chemical weapons. And Saddam had this enormous, robust chemical weapons program back in the 1980s, before the, the first Gulf War. If he's got, if we're so sure he's got this BW program now, this redundant, robust uh, program now, then he must also have the chemical. So they, they went from what they believed was ambiguous evidence, where they said they were drifting as to whether it was real or not, to saying, quote, with high confidence he has these chemical weapons and he has produced, you know, 100 to 500 metric tons within the last year. When you go back and you deconstruct some of this, it's really, to me, quite shocking. 
in the in the national intelligence estimate which really lays some of this out that came out in october of 2002 there are some calculations that are in there that saddam must have um, biological weapons uh, greater in quantity for example than he had before the persian gulf war and the way they they reached that conclusion was they took curveballs information that he had worked on one truck and they they estimated what that truck might produce and then they multiplied that by the six other trucks he said he had heard about. And then they multiplied that by saying, well, what if these trucks ran six months without, you know, without stop, 24-7? And, of course, anyone who knows anything about Iraq, nothing in Iraq runs six months without stop. So there was sort of this wild, what somebody described to me as, as a wag, uh, I guess is the term of art, a wild-ass guess uh, that was used. And it, and it wound up being uh, the highlight, really, in the... National Intelligence Estimate, which is supposed to be the gold standard of, of, of American intelligence products. But what wasn't clearly recognized at the time is that, that that NIE, that estimate, became the template for the speech that Colin Powell gave to the United Nations. I mean, that was the information he was using to convince the world, and certainly Americans as well, that the threat from Saddam was so significant that America was justified in, in, and the international community was justified in going to war. Um, so I, I, to answer your question, I think it played a, a you know, a, a significant, if not dominant role. He, curveball is not the only reason, obviously, the Bush administration uh, and the Blair uh, administration in, in London decided to go to war. But if you go back and you look at their statements, it's very clear it, it played a very significant role. Was there some sort of arm wrestling between the CIA uh, and the administration over this information, this intelligence, what Kerbal provided, as before Powell gave his presentation, before George Bush's State of the Union speech? You do hear in some of the accounts that have been published uh, that there were that there were attempts by a CIA to keep the administration from overly using the curveball information? Um, Over-reliance on the curveball. Not, not really. I mean, in fact, the opposite is, is what happened here. The reason I think this case is, is so uh, disturbing is, um, you know, as a reporter, I hear a great deal about uh, these conspiracies, you know, these, a team of people, you know, in the Pentagon, you know, uh, whispering in Vice President Cheney's ear or, or funneling stuff through the back door uh, of the Vice President's office. What's so disturbing here is that the curveball information really was briefed to the President, briefed to the Vice President, briefed to senior members of Congress. It was, it was delivered to them on a silver platter and was the official product. What there was was a battle within the CIA between members of the clandestine service, and in particular the, um, the head of the uh, European division and the group chief for Germany and a few of their aides, and members of um, uh, what was known as WINPAC, the Weapons Intelligence Nonproliferation Center, which is the, the analyst side of the shop. And the uh, clandestine service officers were basically looking at this and saying, wait a second, we haven't met this guy. We haven't vetted his background. We don't know anything about him. Uh, you know, you, 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 we need more than that. And and they got a specific warning that this man might be a fabricator. That is, the German station chief here in Washington, their resident agent, uh, met with uh, a member of the CIA and warned him there's a real problem with this case. On the, what happened at CIA was that people from WinPAC, from the 
analyst side of the shop said, that's not our problem. We believe this information. It looks good. It smells good. It's very plausible. We're going to go with it. And the senior leadership in, in what I th believe was really a, a uh, extraordinary failure on their part sided with the analysts and, uh, and just, you know, backed down on this thing. Uh, you know, to be fair, I think th there are a number of people who probably didn't realize at the time how critical this information was. That is, they didn't know that so much was hanging on the words of this one man. And so I had the, the head of the clandestine service told me uh, then at the time told me, uh, you know, it was too late to do anything anyway. You know, we could have tapped Dan's nude up and down Pennsylvania Avenue and wasn't going to stop the administration going to war. But he also said we didn't know how important this guy was. So the battle was within the CIA. It was not about uh, between the CIA and uh, and the administration. There's no question that uh, uh, George Tennant, who was then the director of Central Intelligence, John McLaughlin, who was his number two deputy, his, no his number one deputy, um, thoroughly backed this information. So by the time the administration or those dealing with the Iraq situation got it from from their point of view, it was it was coming from, quote, intelligence. Absolutely. This is what intelligence. So there was no, uh, at least as far as the curveball information, there was no distortion or misuse of it at the administration level by the well, administration. Well, exactly. I mean, what, what you had is Colin yeah. Powell um, told me that when before he gave his speech at the United Nations, he went out to the CIA and he spent four days out there. And um, initially what had happened, he, he had been given a speech prepared uh, by the office of the vice president, uh, Scooter Libby, uh, was then the the deputy who had given him this lengthy speech, forty eight pages or something, uh, and and uh, Secretary Powell and uh, John McLaughlin and others looked at this material and decided it was really uh, uh, what they described as garbage. I mean, it was just a series of. Uh, it, it was not only the intelligence they had, but it was rumors and it was allegations and it was unsubstantiated. And, and when they went through it, it was just sort of a, um, a, a laundry list of, of charges, a lot of which they couldn't back up. And, and Powell got very upset and said he wasn't going to do that. And that's when Mr. Tennant said, well, let's look at the NIE, the National Intelligence Estimate. This is the best we've got. It's already been vetted. And, and Secretary Powell said, I still want to, you know, I still want to see the underlying information. And it was as they were going through that process over a four-day period when Powell repeatedly and his aides repeatedly asked um, the others at the table, you know, what's your best stuff and, and, you know, how good is this curveball information? And they were repeatedly told it is absolutely ironclad. It is incontrovertible. We have no doubts about it. So when he went to the United Nations and said, as he did first biological weapons and made it the absolute highlight of his speech, and, and I think we all remember the pictures he showed of these trucks, except that they weren't pictures. They were what he called cartoons that CIA artists, based in the basement of the building out at Langley, had drawn based on analysts' descriptions, based on reports that had gone through a series of changes, but that ultimately came from interrogations that the Germans had done, but not transcripts, just their reports of it, that had been done from Arabic to German to English, and had gone through this transmogrification. So by the end, it appeared absolutely ironclad, and, but in the fact, in some cases, really didn't reflect what Curveball had said. And one, I'll just give you one very clear example of that, which is when Secretary Powell 
spoke and and in the NIE and in other places there was this great fear that these trucks could produce what they called weaponized uh, biological agents that is that the trucks carried these sophisticated drying and grinding machines to turn these the 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 soupy kind of biological material into an aerosol like an asthma inhaler well it turned out uh, when they went back and looked at it, there'd only been one German report to suggest that, and um, not, although, in fact, the Germans had passed on more than 100 reports from Curveball, uh, only one of these reports had suggested that, and when the, they went back and looked at it, it turns out that had just been a mistranslation along the way, that, in fact, Curveball never really said that. So it, it's, it's sort of, it, when you peel this back, what I found is it gets worse and worse. It doesn't get better. <laughs> Is, uh, did the, uh, did the uh, clandestine service have a seat at that table when Colin Powell was trying to scrub the information, try to determine yes. a basis for it? Yes. And did not, they didn't, sounds from what you're saying, they did not challenge it in that session. Nor did they, nor did, there was a, uh, a defense intelligence agency officer there who knew that a separate source, that is a source who was supposedly being used to corroborate Curveball, that that officer knew that that source had already been declared a fabricator, was listed in the U.S. intelligence channels as a fabricator, and he said nothing about it either. Well, Bob, you tell a fascinating story. Uh, I think those of you who are interested in hearing the details can get a hold of Bob's book, Curveball, Spies, Lies, and the Con Man Who Caused a War. <clears throat> Bob Drogan, put out by Random House, <clears throat> came out in October of this year. Bob, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you so much. Well, we look forward to uh, continuing uh, this dialogue with you. And uh, we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's SpyCast, uh, you can get in touch with us uh, through email at spycast at spymuseum, that's one word, dot org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you. Hey, listeners. We're always looking for ways to improve the N2K CyberWire network and maintain the intelligence-driven news experience that keeps you in the know on the latest developments in cybersecurity. We've launched our 2024 audience survey and would love for you to take a few minutes to share your feedback. And hey, there's even a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card if you complete the survey. Visit cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey and share your feedback now.